I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Jonah. This morning we are continuing in a series in what we call the Minor Prophets, or the Hebrew Bible calls them the Twelve, puts all the books in one lump called the Twelve. They are at the end of the English Bible, they're not at the end of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible ends with Chronicles, not first and second, but just one book, Chronicles. That's the end of the Hebrew Bible. The English Bible typically ends with uh, the 12 or with the Apocrypha if you are Catholic or Orthodox. But nonetheless, the 12, Jonah is one of the 12. And it's one of the most famous and infamous stories in the Bible. Becky and I love missionary biographies. And we had our kids read lots of missionary biographies of heroes and of the things they did well and didn't do well, but we always found them incredibly stimulating and challenging and encouraging. This is a missionary biography. It's the first one in the Bible, and frankly, it's weird. But it's interesting in its own way. And it's going to be a very different kind of missionary. It's a true story about a missionary who runs away from God and is swallowed by a big fish and then barfed up on a beach. It's quite a story. There's a lot going on here. And yet, it is really not a story about a fish or about a guy. This is a book about God. So kids, young people, if you don't get that, you don't understand Jonah. It's a story about God, not really about Jonah. A loving God who loves all kinds of people and all the peoples of the world. And hence the title, God's Heart for the Nations. That's what this book is about. So we're going to dive in. Each week we're taking one book at a time in the Minor Prophets. We're just doing boom, boom, boom. So today we're doing the whole book of Jonah. It easily divides into two parts. The first two chapters clearly focus on running away from God. Some of us here this morning are trying to run away from God. And may God use this to wake us up. The second two chapters, the last couple chapters, deal with God's missionary heart for the nations. And so we're just going to dive in and take those two chunks, and in these 48 short verses, hopefully we'll have a better understanding for what is going on. So first of all, running from God, chapters 1 to 2, let me just give a couple of fast, quick facts about Jonah. Some of you know the story well. Most people, even in Western culture, have a pretty, uh, at least a familiarity with Jonah, in the way, you know, the quote, Jonah and the whale. Some of us here have never read the story before. So, a couple quick facts about him. Jonah was a real person. He really lived. Unlike the other 11 minor prophets, this is the only one to run the opposite direction of which God called him. This is the only recorded prophet that said, no thank you, and took off. It is a short story. Most of the other minor prophets, by the way, again, are a series of sermons or oracles or prophecies. And Jonah really has none of that. There's one short sermon. We'll talk about that. But it's basically just a short story. So, it's very interesting. 48 verses, but you got a lot of going on, a lot of moving parts in the book of Jonah. You have an angry missionary. You have a storm at sea. You have a pity party. You have a missionary rescued. You have sailors who are converted. You have a prayer inside a huge fish. You have a fish who is commanded to vomit Jonah up on a beach. You have a prophet who sits down at the end of the book and again has a pity party. You have a citywide revival. You have the salvation of a pagan king, and you have a divinely appointed leaf and a divinely appointed worm. All in 48 verses. So there's a lot going on in this book. Jonah himself, who was Jonah? Jonah was born about the 8th century BC. It's important to know. He was real. 
He lived, and he was from Galilee, same place Jesus was from. He was from a place called Gath Hefer, according to 2 Kings 14, just a couple miles from Nazareth. So he was very, grew up very near where Jesus grew up, and he was from Galilee. He just happened to live seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. And what's so interesting, again, he is the only prophet recorded that ran away from God. And God called him to be a missionary to Nineveh. Say, what is that? I'm going to show you in a second. Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. Now, some people have heard the story of Jonah and either what they call the whale, the fish, and they think the story is a little bit fishy. Uh, some people have said, I, I don't really believe the story. There's, a, there's an old story of a young girl in a class trying to share the gospel with her skeptical professor. I did this one time, actually, with one of my professors. And, but she tried to share the gospel, and the professor put his glasses down. He said, you really don't believe in the Bible, do you, young lady? That crazy old book full of stories that are legendary and myth? And she said, I do. And he said, you really believe in that book? Yeah, and all the crazy stories. You don't really believe that things like Jonah and the whale really happened. She said, I do. He said, how do you know that Jonah really lived? And she said, well, someday when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. And he said, well, what if he's not in heaven? She thought for a minute and she said, well, then you ask him. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, enough messing around. <laughs> Brings us to the opening verses of this book, where we see God's command to Jonah. And it's very clear it's a straightforward command. Not very difficult. When God speaks, it's not too hard to understand. As Mark Twain used to say, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. Most of God's commands are pretty straightforward. This one is. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. So we're talking about roughly 500 miles from Israel up to northern Iraq. And preach against it because its wickedness, that's the reason he's going, has come up before me. But, but, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. As far as most biblical scholars believe, Tarshish is probably in the direction of and may have been part of ancient Spain. So the point is, he goes the exact opposite direction. So he goes down to Joppa. So from Galilee down to Joppa, which is near modern-day Tel Aviv, about 70 miles. And he found a ship bound for Tarshish. And after paying the fee, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He's going to get away as fast as he possibly can. In verse 2... You'll see the phrase, go to the wicked city of Nineveh. Interesting, that is a Hebrew adjective, the word we translate wicked. It's used nine times in 48 verses. It's a Hebrew adjective, ra, can be translated evil or trouble or difficult or disaster. But it's, when you're doing Bible study, you're looking for repetitive phrases or words that give you a clue what the writer's doing. Nine times, Jonah uses this Hebrew adjective. That is about either you can translate it again, evil, wicked, or disaster. So there's a lot of that going on in this book. Let me show you a couple photos of this. This is a reconstruction of ancient Nineveh. This is the capital city of the largest empire in the world at this time. So we're talking about real history and the largest empire in the world, known to be very cruel and brutal. And this is in northern Iraq, 
and this is a reconstruction based on ruins we have. It was a massive city and rumored to be very, very beautiful. These are the ruins today of ancient Nineveh, still there in the sand in northern Iraq, right outside of Mosul that still exists. If we go to the next slide, Jonah went down to Joppa. Joppa's in Israel. So again, we're talking about 500 miles or so. And the ruins of Joppa are still there. It's also called Jaffa today. But it's right next door to Tel Aviv. The next photo you'll see is of Tel Aviv. If you fly into Israel today, you'll fly into Tel Aviv. I actually took this photo from Joppa. I was just standing down on the shore in Joppa where Jonah was. And I took the photo of Tel Aviv. That's how close you are to modern day Tel Aviv. One of the funniest things in Jaffa today is this crazy cement whale that sits there. Uh, as a reminder of the, of the story. Also interesting in history, Napoleon came through Joppa, Jaffa in March of 1799 in the siege of the Ottomans. And he actually went north and pushed them north where he defeated them in the valley of Jezreel, right above where Armageddon will be. And he called the valley of Jezreel the greatest battlefield in the world. So a lot of history has gone on in this region and that brings us to the problem. The problem is instead of obeying God, Jonah runs the opposite direction. And what's fascinating in the book, I was, this came to me this week as I'm going through this, it, you start going through everybody in the book and everything in the book obeys God except the prophet. The wind obeys God. The worm obeys God. The plant obeys God. The fish obey God. The pagan sailors obey believe God. The pagan Ninevites believe God. The pagan king believes God. Everybody believes except for the prophet. Except for the guy named for the book. Brings up an interesting story. Who wrote the book? We don't know for sure. Most of it, only Jonah would have known. But we know it's divinely inspired. It's always been in the Hebrew canon and viewed as part of scripture. Now the question is this. Why does Jonah run from God? Why are some of us here this morning running from God? And at the root of all disobedience, hear this, young people especially, I want you to hear this. At the root of all disobedience, before you have poor behavior, you have poor belief. That's at the root of all disobedience. At the root of Jonah's disobedience and your disobedience and my disobedience is a mistrust in the goodness of God. I mean, Jonah did not believe God had his best interest at heart. He knew what God said. It wasn't no mystery what God had told him to do, but he didn't believe God. And it's a reminder, friends, that all sin is rooted in a belief that God's way is not the best way. That's why when it comes to repentance, the first thing you need to repent of is wrong belief before wrong behavior. Because when we sin, especially when we start sinning and becomes a pattern, we convince ourselves this way. These are the lies we tell ourselves. We convince ourselves that if I obey what God says, if I do what he has laid out, I'm going to be miserable. That's what we convince ourselves of. We convince ourselves that if I submit to God's will, I'm going to miss out on life and be miserable. And the irony is the more that Jonah did his own thing, the more of a mess he made. And that's exactly what happens every time we try to do it our way. 
And that's what Jonah clearly was doing here, running from God. Friends, bottom line is you read this book and you can't read it without asking the question and being reminded we've all done the Jonah thing. Am I doing the Jonah thing? A lot of us here are walking with the Lord right now, but some of us aren't. You know who you are. And maybe you're running from God this morning. Maybe you're trying to get away from what he has made clear to you. Maybe you're refusing to surrender to Christ as Savior, thinking you know better than repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question to you is, how's it going right now for you? Or maybe you are truly saved and you're refusing to get baptized. You're saying, no, I'm not doing that. I've had people tell me that. That's an act of disobedience. We're commanded to be baptized, not a suggestion. It's a command to go public for Jesus. Doesn't save us, but it's the first thing we're commanded to do once we're saved. Or maybe you're refusing to forgive somebody and you're bitter. Maybe you're refusing to say no to pornography. Maybe you're refusing to quit lying to your parents or to your spouse. Maybe you're refusing to stop stealing or cheating. Or maybe you're refusing to start tithing. Whatever it is, we've all done the Jonah thing. And the message of Jonah is that when I try to run away from God, lots of things are going to happen. And they're all bad. And Jonah stands as a powerful testimony. Next observation, worth noting that Jesus brings up Jonah in Matthew 12. He mentions the sign of the prophet Jonah. And his point is, as Jonah was in the belly of the, of, of the fish three nights, you know, three days, three nights, Jesus says, that points to me being in the grave three days, three nights. Several of the early church fathers, by the way, saw very strong connections affirmed by what Jesus said, between Jonah and Jesus, and even some of the stories. For example, a number of New Testament scholars have pointed out there's very strong similarities between the book of Jonah, especially the storm narrative there, and the storm narrative in Mark chapter 4. For example, both Jonah and Jesus are out in boats. Both Jonah and Jesus are in boats that are overtaken by a storm, a violent storm. Both storms are described as, as uh, large and sudden and violent. Both Jonah and Jesus are from Galilee. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep when the storm strikes. Both are awakened by men who are in fear of their lives. Both stories, God intervenes and calms the sea supernaturally. And both stories end with the observers in fear and awe. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the storm narrative in Mark 4 borrows from the Jonah narrative and the storm narrative. These kinds of intertextual connections are all through the Bible. We miss a lot of them in our day of distraction because of being distracted by all the things we do. Now, assuming the similarities are intentional in that kind of a connection, and we do know Jesus used Jonah and affirmed he was a real person. The question is, what's the point? And the, and the point is captured in Matthew 12, 41, when Jesus said, someone greater than Jonah is here. That's the point. Jonah pointed to him, meaning Jonah's story and experience point to Jesus and the gospel. That's the point that, Jonah, that Jesus is making about the book of Jonah. As the story of Jonah continues, it's very interesting to see the huge emphasis put on God's providence in the book. I've already alluded to this a little bit, but if you go back to chapter 1, I hope you have a Bible in front of you. I hope you're looking at a text 
We put a high value on keeping our finger in the text, or if you're using a Bible on a screen somehow, but have the, have the wording in front of you. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind. Verse 17. The Lord provided, it actually uses the divine name here in Hebrew, Yahweh, provided a great fish. Chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord commands the fish. Or if you go to chapter 4, three times right in a row, the same verb used in the book of Exodus for providing. Chapter 4, verse 6, God provided a vine. Verse 7, God provided a worm. Verse 8, God provided a scorching wind. So very interesting to see the emphasis here that God is in complete control of the circumstances we are in. Whatever you're going through right now, good, bad, or otherwise, the Lord is in the details. That brings us to Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Quite honestly, an incredible prayer in many ways. I mean, basically a fourth of the book is a psalm of praise. The theology is sound. Jonah gets it. He understands who Yahweh is. And yet when you look at the prayer, <laughs> it's still a self-centered prayer. The words I and my show up at least 15 times. He's still very much self-absorbed. I'm just going to read the first three verses of chapter 2 as this prayer unfolds. Three days and three nights from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God. He said, this is a good prayer. In my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. If you drop down to verses 9 and 10. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Many scholars point out that that is probably the key verse in the hinge verse in the whole book. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish. Interesting. And it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Tim Keller, Tim Keller has a book on Jonah. He believes verse 9 is the key verse for the book. And he writes this, quote, It means if someone is saved, it is wholly God's doing. It is not a matter of God saves you partly and you partly save yourself. No, God saves us. We do not and cannot save ourselves. That is the gospel. And that is the message in Jonah. Only God elects. Only God sovereignly draws. Only God sovereignly convicts of sin. And only God sovereignly opens blinded eyes. And so Jonah tried to run. Question is, are we trying to run this morning? Are you trying to run? It's not going to go well. That's clear from Jonah. That brings us to the last two chapters. The missionary heart of God. Here God's mercy and his grace are overflowing and on display here. It brings us to chapter 3, where God commands this fish to vomit, it's the word used, Jonah up on the beach, basically saying, all right, take two, <laughs> let's try this again. And so one of the first lessons right here, chapter 3, young people hear this, one of the first lessons in chapter 3 is God's mercy. God of second chances. God of third chances. Now, sometimes he says, I'm done, but it is amazing how often he displays that he is a God of second and third chances. And you get a powerful glimpse of his love and mercy here. 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 3a. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. How many times has God said something to you a second time? Or you've heard it a second time. You're like, okay, I better listen this time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very either large city, the Hebrew is, or very strategic city or very important city. It took three days to go through it. It was huge. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and preaching. We'll get to that in just a minute. But my point right here is God is a God of second chances. His mercy is on display. Chapter three starts unfolding God's heart for the nations. And especially, some of you know this, but some of you don't, how brutal an empire the Assyrians were. The Assyrian empire was the largest empire on the earth at this time. Meaning that the king of Assyria is the most powerful person on the planet at this time. It was a very large, very wealthy empire They were brutal. You got to think Nazis, ISIS, Taliban, uh, Khmer Rouge. I mean, this is a brutal empire that delights in victory, war, torture, massacre. And, And that's who God said, I want you to go share the gospel with them. Now, you can imagine, you probably wouldn't be really excited to do that either. And Jonah certainly wasn't. A couple years ago, an article came out from Peter Presker, a historian, and he wrote a very interesting article on the Assyrians. Brand new, in fact, I just got a brand new book out from a professor of Assyriology at Yale on the Assyrian Empire. It's fascinating to see the glimpses and how much we know of the Assyrians. But the title of this article by Peter Presker a couple years ago, The Assyrians, the Appalling, Appalling Lords of Torture. And he writes this, just one paragraph. And and I I only highlight this. I'm not trying to be macabre. I'm trying to highlight God's concern and love for even the worst and most violent and vicious killers. The Assyrians created an enormous empire. Unfortunately for their enemies, the Assyrians mastered torture techniques. And they bragged about it. The Assyrians depicted their torture in great detail on stone reliefs of the walls of their imperial palace. They intentionally advertised their brutality. Hear that. They intentionally advertised their brutality as part of their psychological warfare. Now, how do we know about these stone reliefs? Well, today, like so much of the world, it's in the British Museum. When the Brits ruled Iraq, After World War I, they borrowed some of them, took them actually from the ruins of Nineveh. You can go to the British Museum today. Becky and I have been there a couple times and see there's an Assyria room. In fact, there's a couple rooms with all these things from Assyria. Some of the stone reliefs taken from Sennacherib's palace and some of the other Assyrian kings are in the British Museum today on the wall. Beautiful stone reliefs carved that were found there that were put in the Imperial Palace. And on these stone reliefs, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail, are some of the most brutal descriptions, not in descriptions, depictions of torture that imaginable. This is what they would do and brag about. And this is the people God sent Jonah to. That's the point. This is God's heart for 
wicked, lost people like us and the nations. And this is a people that is about as opposite as you could get from Jonah himself. These are not anything like the Hebrews. And yet God said, I love them and I want you to go to them. And that brings us to the heart of Jonah's missionary sermon. I've studied a lot of sermons over the years. I did my doctoral work in the history of preaching and this is one of the worst sermons ever preached. If Jonah had been in my preaching lab, he would have got a big fat F. It's only five words in the original Hebrew. It's supposed to be a missionary sermon, <laughs> an evangelistic sermon, but there's no mention of God, no mention of the gospel, no mention of repentance, no mention of salvation, no mention of heaven or hell, no mention of hope, only five words. And it's all in one verse. Chapter 3, verse 4. Here it is. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, preaching. And here's the whole sermon. And again, it's only five words. It's longer in English than it is in Hebrew. Only five words in Hebrew. Forty more days and Nineveh gets it. That's the first missionary sermon in the Bible. It's horrible. It stinks. But that's what Jonah preached. It shows you even by chapter 3, even after chapter 2 in this great psalm of praise, he still has a bad attitude. He doesn't want to do this. If you look at verses 5 to 10, we get a report on what happened. The Ninevites believed God. Let that sink in. And again, we don't relate to the Ninevites, so put in a modern-day equivalent in your mind. You know, the Nazis, the, the Taliban, the ISIS, the Khmer Rouge. Think of, you know, somebody that we would say, oh, evil. They believed God. They heard this horrible sermon, and they believed God. And they, they recognized somehow it was some kind of a call to repent to this God. He, Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, verse 6. And he rose from his throne. So in five, they believed God and a fast was called and all of them from the greatest to least put on sackcloth. They recognized that was a symbol of repentance. Then his warning reached the king. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes and he put on burlap. He put on sackcloth and sat down in the dust. In Middle Eastern culture, old men certainly didn't do that and kings certainly didn't do that. That was a sign of disregard, a sign of not respect. And yet he did this. This is the proclamation he issued. And then the king issues this incredible proclamation that the people and even the animals are to put on sackcloth and everyone to call urgently, right in the middle of verse 8, let everyone call urgently. Not just call on God, urgently. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a divine miracle. This is God unleashing revival on a people. Now, how long did it last? And the, and the answer is, we don't know, but not real long. Because when Nahum wrote, we're going to look at the book of Nahum in just a few weeks. He's writing about 100 years later. Nineveh, again, is described as a very wicked city in a city of blood. So it's a reminder. The lesson here is just because there has been revival or a movement of God in a church or a culture or a nation doesn't mean we can just rest on it and assume that's going to always be the case. Renewal can break out in a church. It can break out in a city or a school, a college. 
but it can fade as people forget. And that's probably exactly what happened because in less than 100 years later, they're right back to their old wicked ways. That brings us to chapter 4 where the story gets even weirder. You think about the guy on TV. Wait, hold it. It gets weirder yet. Jonah gets angry at God because the Ninevites repent and believe. So he preaches an awful sermon. He's got a bad attitude. And then when they do repent and they believe, he gets mad. He's unhappy. And it's very clear he doesn't like these people and he's upset that they repent. So before I read the first three verses of chapter four, let's just summarize and be honest what Jonah is. Jonah's basically a jerk. He's a petty racist with a rotten attitude. Now, what's encouraging is that God used him. And so if God uses people like this, I'm encouraged. (laughs) If he uses people like Peter, who kept putting his foot in his mouth and doing stupid things, I'm encouraged because that's me. That's us. And so these kind of stories, in a weird way, are an encouragement. That God, when he puts his affections on somebody and draws them and he makes them one of his own, He's committed to them, and he uses them despite themselves. And that's what you have going on here. Now, chapter 4, 1 to 3. This petty racist with a rotten attitude. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, meaning at their repentance. And he prayed to the Lord. And this is a pity party. I mean, that's what this is. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? You can hear him pounding on it. This is what I tried to forestall. By fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were gracious and compassionate. He's, he's chewing out God for his love and mercy. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So take away my life. It's better that I just sit down and die. This guy's a knucklehead. He's still got a bad attitude. And he's still not getting it. It's just, it is amazing how little Jonah gets in all of this. God supernaturally then provides again for Jonah. You see this word provide come up again and again. Verse 6, chapter 4, provides a leafy plant, provides a worm, provides an east scorching wind. God keep, the point is God keeps providing for him. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? This plant goes up. Jonah gets mad. He wanted to die. God says, why are you angry at the plant? Verse 10, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? That's probably just those that are beyond the age of being a young baby or toddler. So this is a this is not even counting children. This is a huge, and it's a, in that day, this is a massive, massive city. And ends with a question, and also many animals. God's even concerned about the animals. So bottom line, Jonah had forgotten, ladies and gentlemen, something very important. Young people, kids, hear this. He forgot that God of the Bible is a missionary God. He forgot that. It's very easy to start thinking God is only about my little click, my little group, people that think my way, and he forgot God has a huge heart for the nations. And that is exactly why Jesus 
in Matthew 28, did not give the Great Commission. He reiterated the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? It's a big assignment when Jesus said to his 12 disciples, I want you to go to all nations. Pontata ethne in Greek, to ethne, all peoples, all ethnic groups. Jesus didn't invent the Great Commission. It wasn't like a last minute thought like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah I forgot to tell you, go reach all the people. It comes out of Genesis 12. When God said to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all peoples. And I'm going to work through you and bring blessing to the nations. The Great Commission started in Genesis 12. Jesus just reiterates the Great Commission and reemphasizes it to his 12 disciples. And from what we know from church history, very interesting. Eusebius, the bishop, who was the biographer of Constantine, the emperor. Eusebius lived in about 4th century in Israel in Caesarea. And he was the first one to write an extensive history of the church. We have it today still. And he tells us that from everything he can gather, and he's only writing a few hundred years after the disciples lived. He says, from everything we can tell, we know the disciples took Jesus literally and fanned out to the peoples of the world. He tells us John went to Turkey, and there's pretty good evidence when you're in Ephesus that John was there. He tells us Peter went to Italy. He tells us Thomas went to southern India. It was amazing when we were in southern India one summer, how many things are named Thomas? Thomas Stationery, Thomas Propane Store, Thomas this, Thomas that. There's a very strong tradition of Thomas coming down from the monsoons and ending up in Kerala in southern India and going over to uh, Tamil Nadu in that area. He tells us that, uh, that Simon went to Britain and Eusebius tells us that Matthew went to North Africa. So it's very interesting that the disciples seem to take Jesus very seriously. There's a ministry today called Joshua Project that tries to track the unreached peoples of the world, those that have not heard. And the Joshua Project, I was looking again at their website this week. It's worth looking at. They also have an app that highlights a, an unreached people of each day and who they are. But Joshua Project estimates right now on our planet, there are approximately... 7,000, it's actually a little bit north of that, but 7,000 unreached people groups. These are separate, ethnic, distinct, linguistic people groups that are not reached by the, and they define unreached meaning less than 2% have any uh, understanding of the gospel. That's unreached. But then they tell us there's a smaller subset of that that are actually unengaged people groups. These mean, that means no known believers. Not one known. No Bible, no scripture, no missionary. And when you combine unreached peoples and unengaged peoples, as missiologists talk about this, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that means roughly 2 billion people cut off from the good news of Jesus. And the question has to be asked, who's going to go? Now, we have a long history in this church of sending our best to the mission field. I'm very proud of that tradition. We are proud of that tradition. Our elders are proud of that tradition. Our staff is. Our latest one to be going in just a couple of weeks, this short little guy that read scripture this morning, Josh Friesen. We're sending him off to Budapest. We want to be involved in the missionary harvest and the missionary theme that comes out of the pages of scripture. And that is that we have a God that has a heart for the nations. All right, we're going to land the plane. We have three questions this morning <clears throat> that scream to us from the book of Jonah. Let's take these one at a time. Jonah asked several questions, but I'm going to take these three. Number one, 
you ha- we have to ask when looking at the book of Jonah, do you know God? I'm not asking if you're religious or if you go to church or if you grew up in such and such a denomination. Do you know Christ as Lord? Have you been, what the Bible would say, reconciled to God? Isaiah 59, 2 says this, your sins have cut you off from God. And the Bible says that the moment I am born, the moment of conception even, I am born into sin with a disposition to sin, and I'm born under judgment with Adam's guilt imputed to me. And if something doesn't happen, I am going to perish and go to hell. That we are under the wrath of God and enemies of God. And the good news of the gospel, after you hear the bad news, is in Mark 1.15 when it says Jesus came preaching and he said, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to do what the Ninevites did. Humble ourselves before God. Cry out to God. It's what the sailors did. It said the sailors feared God. That's what it means to repent. And then believe is to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Have you done that? Every week in churches sit people who, have, who are not reconciled to God. It is the most important thing in the world to get right to know God. Second question coming from the book of Jonah has to be asked. Are you running from God right now? Are you running from the Lord right now? I should say, are you trying to run from the Lord right now? Very interesting as I was mulling over Jonah this week. Three different times, uno, dos, tres, three different times, Jonah makes a powerful profession of faith. You you look at these and think, this guy gets it. He He knows God. In chapter one, verse nine, All of chapter 2, as I said, a quarter of the book is a psalm of praise, and it's got good theology in it. He understands God is sovereign and who he is, and he knows Yahweh. And then chapter 4, verse 2, you have another confession of praise. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of him having good theology, understanding who God is, believing in the God of the Bible, you have a missionary here who still, in spite of knowing this incredible God, has a bad attitude is disobedient and only when pushed gives in to grudging submission to God's will. There's a huge lesson in that. And here's the lesson. It's one thing to believe in God, even the true God. It's another thing to trust this God with the circumstances that he has appointed for me. Uh, Favorite book of mine recently, I shared it with the staff this week some of our staff this week, uh, is written by a missionary herself, Isabel Kuhn. She wrote a number of books. Her and her husband, Moody Grads, went to China. And uh, she wrote a small biography, not about her husband or anything else. She wrote it about Arthur and Wilda Matthews. Now, most of you have never heard of Arthur and Wilda Matthews. They're, you know, in God's providence, they're like most of us, they're just nobodies out there doing their thing for God. But Arthur and Wilda Matthews were the last China Inland missionaries to be evicted out of communist China in the early 1950s. And they had a rough go of things. And she, she wrote this small biography about them called Green Leaf in Drought. Kind of a weird title. But the, the, the point of the book is how to have, how to flourish in spite of sorrow and setbacks. That, that's the point of the book. She tells us how Arthur and Wilda in their last few years in China and all the opposition they faced and misrepresentation and being lied about and and facing communist hassle and all the trouble they had losing a child and all this stuff, they battled fear. A lot like Jonah, they fought unbelief. 
They wrestled with doubt. They struggled to trust God. And then Isabel Kuhn says, until they finally learned the secret, how to flourish despite their circumstances. You say, well, what was the secret? And it's very interesting. I remember when I got to the page, I still have it. It's all highlighted. Quote, Green leaf can be produced in, dr- in drought when they finally dealt, they, Arthur and Wilda, when they finally dealt with the fact that they needed to delight in the will of God and not just submit to the will of God. There's a big difference. That's a huge difference. When they quit murmuring and quit fretting and quit doubting and quit complaining and started rejoicing, it turned their life around. And they were committed missionaries who knew the Lord. Green Leaf in Drought. Great little book about how to flourish despite sorrow, disappointment, pain, suffering, obstacles, and setbacks. That's the kind of stuff we need to, that's the value of reading missionary biographies. It's the value of reading good biographies of any godly saint. They encourage, they motivate, they stimulate, they confront, they convict, and they're challenging. That's why we, our kids read missionary biographies all the time, paid them to read missionary biographies because of the value in that. So Jonah sang the Frank Sinatra song. What's the Frank Sinatra song? I did it my way. And in the process, he hit a wall and it hurt. And the question before us this morning, are you running from God? And if so, take a lesson from Jonah. You're going to make a mess. It's going to hurt more until you do it his way. Last question coming from this. If you know Christ, who are you sharing the gospel with? That's missionary book here. The Great Commission, take the gospel to all peoples. Evangelism has to start at home. Are you evangelizing your children? That's the first point. It's amazing how many Bible-professing moms and dads are not evangelizing their kids. Are you evangelizing your kids and discipling them? And then secondly, it has to go out beyond our home and our friends and our relatives beyond that. It has to go beyond that. When it comes to the Great Commission, ladies and gentlemen, young people, when it comes to the Great Commission, take the gospel out to all peoples. Every single professing Christian is one of three things. They're either a sender, meaning what we're doing with Josh Friesen here, we're getting behind him with prayer and encouragement and financial support. You're either a sender, or you're a goer, or you're disobedient. Those are the only three options available to a Christian when it comes to the Great Commission. Which are you? Father, thank you for this weird missionary biography. And yet, thank you that it shows us your heart for lost peoples and the gospel for all peoples. Challenge us, and may we continue 130 years old as a church, having sent out dozens over the years, may you raise up more from our church to go to the nations to preach the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.